Kermit, Kermit, Kermit. Hey, uh, my agent is dropping by a little later in the show. Okay, fine. Yeah. Hey, stand by for the next number. Everything's ready, boss. Good boy, Scooter. That kid's doing a great job. Hey, do you think you have time to talk to him? Of course, I always have time to talk to Scooter. His uncle owns the theater. No, 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 no. I mean, my, my agent. What does he own? 10% of me. Okay, okay. What does he want to talk about? My contract. Fozzie, you don't have a contract. That's what he wants to talk about. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring. The most sensational, inspirational, celebrational... Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, it's felt like over the last two weeks, I've had about 75 feet of snow. How is it in San Francisco right now? Well, it's not snowing. That would be worrisome. It would. We don't have the infrastructure for it. It would be real bad for a lot of people. Though I have to imagine it would help with social distancing. <laughs> it probably would. Yeah. It's, I mean, that, that has been one good thing here. Like, even if we wanted to go out, we really can't. <laughs> So it's kind of all of my windows are single pane. It's a terrible it would be a terrible scene. We've only lived here a year now, and I think the girls are already starting to get over snow a little bit <laughs> only because of the last like two weeks. Fair. Yesterday's snow wasn't good packing snow, but like last week's really was. Um, but I found a good patch of it that I could. I taught my daughter the first lesson of snowball fights, which is a snowball fight is not over until you're inside. It's an important lesson. Then she shoved a snowball down the back of my neck. Chad, is that a problem or? Does that just mean that she's actually paying attention when you teach her stuff? I taught her too well. That's all I'm saying. It was cold, man. It was cold. This is a feed of Lunatic Daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, I'd like to point you to our social media at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And of course, LunaticDaring.com, where we have our latest episodes, our watch list, and our bibliography. We are currently going through the Muppet Show, two episodes at a time. We are we are real close to the end, Nick, of season one. A couple of, I think, interesting episodes and a couple of interesting guest stars tonight. I think the first episode is our first uh, mononym. Yes, our first our first uh, guest will be our first mononym of the mononym of the series. That's that is very true. I don't know how many. Uh, I know of at least one more. He plays the piano, <laughs> and then Prince, but that's not Prince. Isn't part of the Muppet Show. It's uh, Muppets Tonight. Yeah, and he wasn't Prince then. I believe he's officially credited as the artist formerly known as. I think it's time to get things started. It's time to light the lights. The Muffin Show with our very special guest star, Twiggy! Episode 121 with special guest star Twiggy, produced November 9th through 11th, 1976, aired that winter, aired November 19th in the UK, which is important later, but didn't air till February in the US. Same writers, same directors. I'm not even going to bother. We're so close, Chad. So we're so close to having a slight mix-up on that. We are. Next season, at least one of those writers is going to be gone, actually. I know I keep asking you this, but I really want to get a gauge. Did you have any idea who she was? No. <laughs> no. Okay. No, I'm just asking, because I absolutely knew who she was, and yet kind of didn't. The supermodel and international style icon known as Twiggy was born Leslie Hornby on September 19th, 1949, in Middlesex County, England. Her mother was a factory worker, and her father was a master carpenter. She attended Bronzeberry and Kilburn High School in Brent, and around this time, okay, this isn't funny, but it's kind of crazy, her great-great-grandmother Grace was trampled to death by fellow shoppers at a bargain sale at a place called Meckeroy's in Hackney in England. So I guess it's not only Americans that do dumb stuff like that. 
When she was 16, Leslie was hired to get her hair colored and cut short in London by Leonard of Mayfair, who was a, a very famous celebrity hairdresser. A professional photographer was there and took several photos for Leonard to hang up in his shop. But a fashion journalist from the Daily Express, the local paper, saw them and asked to meet the model. A few weeks later, Daily Express featured an article with new pictures of Leslie, calling her the face of 66, the cockney kid with a face to launch a thousand shapes, and she's only 16. Her career instantly took off. Uh, she was short for a model, five foot six, weighed about a buck ten. But her 31, 23, 32 figure became indicative of what the New York Times called, quote, a new kind of streamlined androgynous sex appeal. And that would be a large part of Twiggy's legacy. She kind of changed what a woman's figure could be in the 60s. Not quite heroin chic, but definitely skinnier than Marilyn Monroe. Her real pretentious-sounding photographer boyfriend convinced her to change her name to Twiggy. Apparently, her childhood nickname was Twigs. I'm guessing just because she's probably always been skinny. Uh, soon, Twiggy was seen in all the leading fashion magazines and had her own line of clothes called Twiggy Dresses in 1967, which, by the way, is only a year later. She, like everyone, was full of self-doubt and said that she hated how she looked and just thought everyone else in the world was insane for fawning over her. Twiggy's signature look was, you know, stick-thin, short, what would have been called at the time boyish haircut and kind of like super dark eyelashes. She came to New York in 1967, and her arrival at JFK was covered by the press, like she was the Beatles or something, but she was already that big of a name, face, and body. The New Yorker dedicated 100 pages to the Twiggy phenomenon in a 1967 issue. She modeled all over the world and did a million magazine covers, a lot of them for various international editions of Vogue. Twiggy fever did take its hit of criticism, uh, as people thought she was presenting an, an unhealthy body image with her wafer-thin looks. She always insisted that it was her default build and that she ate sensibly, but later did express some regret that her looks inspired other models and women in general to try to get skinny like her when it wasn't their natural body type. She retired from modeling after four years, tired of being a walking clothes hanger, those are her words, and she turned her eye to Hollywood. Her film debut, as an extra, by the way, was in Ken Russell's The Devils in 1971. She had made friends with the idiosyncratic British director, and he had shown her a lot of classic movies as part of her film education. She starred in The Boyfriend, also directed by Russell, later that year. The role won her two Golden Globes, one for Best Actress and another for New Star of the Year. But her film career, it never quite took off in the way I imagine she hoped it would, especially given that start. In 1973, she appeared with David Bowie on the cover of his album Pinups. After her appearance on The Muppet Show, she signed a deal with Mercury Records and released two albums, Twiggy and Please Get My Name Right. Uh, they both sold well, and to this date, she's released nine albums. She hosted the first season of a rock music series, Supersonic, which was kind of like American Bandstand or Soul Train for pasty British people. Twiggy had a cameo in The Blues Brothers in 1980, played Eliza Doolittle in a TV production of Pygmalion, made her Broadway debut in 83, and played Robin Williams' love interest in Harold Ramis' comedy Club Paradise. This summer, make your escape to Club Paradise. I say let's go. All right, we're going. Just getting there is half the fun. So join your host, Robin Williams. Oh, bye. I'm Island Jack. And what island are you from? Ellis, originally. With Peter O'Toole, Rick Moranis, Jimmy Cliff, Twiggy, Adolf Caesar, Eugene Levy, and Joanna Cassidy. You'll enjoy luxurious accommodation. We're still ironing out the bugs. Well, I think you'll find most of the bugs in my room. Soak up the scenery. Oh, oh. 
They said that you weren't fit to sleep with pigs. But I stood up for you. What'd you say? I said you were. All right. I've never heard of this movie. Which is a movie I loved as a kid, and it's awful. It is not a good movie, but I love it. This is the first time I remember seeing Twiggy. I'm sure I had seen her Muppet show by then, but this is the first time she registered. She did some TV movies, uh, she played the Little Match Girl, and then she played the Little Tramp's Mother in a film called Young Charlie Chaplin, which I'm which I'm guessing was like maybe Young Sheldon, but probably less annoying. In 1991, she had a CBS sitcom called Princesses in the States, but it only aired five episodes. She did a segment of the horror anthology Body Bags, starring alongside future Muppet Show guest, Jedi Master, and the one true Joker, Mark Hamill. <laughs> they starred in the segment called The Eye, helmed by Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist director Toby Hooper. She hosted magazine programs, released more albums, was on the cast of America's Next Top Model for a few seasons. She returned to modeling in the 2000s, including ads for the beauty company Olay, where she ran into a little bit of a snag when the company did some retouching on the image to make it look like their anti-wrinkle cream did a little bit more than it actually did. Procter & Gamble, the owners of Olay, replaced the ads with less touched-up versions. Today, she has a fashion line called Twiggy London uh, on the Home Shopping Network and is still highly involved in the fashion world, especially for women her age, doing a lot of work with Marks & Spencer, who's a big British retailer. Anyone who's English listening to this probably laughed at me for not really knowing what Marks & Spencer is. She still lives in London with her husband, film and stage actor Lee Lawson. They've been together for 33 years. Fun fact, she was appointed Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire in 2019. So she's actually Dame Twiggy. Technically, she's actually Dame Leslie Lawson, her married name, but uh, which is an order of chivalry rewarding contributions to the arts and sciences as well as humanitarian work. Now, I'm clearly not old enough to remember Twiggy Fever, but I do feel like I've known who she was for most of my life. That doesn't mean I knew much about her before I checked up on her, but I knew two things. Club Paradise, and The Muppet Show have made her part of my pop culture landscape, even if I didn't know anything about her modeling career. And this is our, our second model we've had on the show, Candace Bergen being the first, but it's notable that by this point she had quit modeling and was working on her entertainment career, much like Bergen was. Now that you've heard that, what did you think Twiggy did? So there's a thing about these Muppet Show guests. I don't know if it's just me compartmentalizing so I can focus on other things, but there are people who are musicians, there are people who are dancers, there are a lot of people that have worked in theater, and then there's this just sort of erroneous category, which doesn't mean they're any less talented or anything else like that. Often it probably means that they have overlapping talents, but that category is where a lot of the people that I'm less familiar with end up, because in this particular case, she kind of... uh I don't think she reminded me of anyone so much as Shelley Duvall in this episode. Yeah, I can see that. So you would put her in the miscellaneous category. Yeah, kind of. No, that's fair. I don't... Listen, back in 1976, she was a big deal. Everybody knew who she was. So, because what I think the episode does is it kind of lets her do a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. She was like an, I won't say she was omnipresent, but like, I don't have a whole lot of recollection of not knowing who she was, despite not being into fashion, despite not being old enough to catch her when she was at her peak. In my brain, she's also miscellaneous. She seemed at ease with the Muppets. This is a, a little bit of a confusing episode, only because... Just like when we met Scooter for the first time after already meeting Scooter, this week we meet Uncle Deadly for the first time after already meeting Uncle Deadly. Part of me wondered if this had been shot before the Price episode. Uh, Actually, no, this was shot after. Maybe they just decided they liked the character, they liked the look of the character, and decided to build something around it. Because the backstage story for this episode, of course, is everyone keeps seeing the Phantom of the Muppet Show. But our, our host, our one and only host... Kermit, he doesn't believe in the Phantom. So our opening musical number, we start weird right off the bat, man. Yeah. With a singing feather duster. So if you'll permit me, there's a little bit of story time. Sure. 
Tony Todd was my impression of the Boogeyman because I saw Candyman around the time that it came out. I was like three or four. I saw Candyman last year for the first time at 44. Still terrifying, huh? Yes. And I couldn't decide if it was racist or not. That's a regular conversation. Yeah, I think the answer is yes and no. Or my dad in particular really liked horror movies. And I remember one night I couldn't sleep. I might have had a bad dream and I sort of crept into the room. But my dad was watching Critters. So the combination of like (laughs) fur, teeth, and a black screen behind it with like the random pipe cleaners. I didn't have like a full trigger flashback, but I remember sitting there and like drinking my tea and being like, why is this freaking me out? (laughs) So this was the very first episode that I watched on Disney Plus. So the very first thing I saw was this in HD. (laughs) (laughs) was this feather duster backed up by some feather boas i think they're supposed to be Mm. singing a song called dance which is a song from like 1976 from a Peter Yates film called Mother, Jugs, and Speed, which was a dark comedy starring Bill Cosby, Raquel Welch, and Harvey Keitel. Ah, okay. (laughs) Playing members of an independent ambulance service in Los Angeles. You know, one of those people we don't like to talk about these days, but uh, that's still crazy. That's a crazy cast. Like you said, this number's kind of done. It's not all done in front of black. It's done in front of different colored backgrounds, but it's definitely like this chroma key thing, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're kind of green screened out. This reminded me of Ragnarok. Fair. Where they just, I mean, it, literally, they, just, they took a piece of cleaning equipment and turned it into a, a character and had it sing a song. It's actually very much like Ragnarok. With that in mind, one of the other things for us to keep track of is while the Muppets have become their own distinct thing, Jim was still a fan of puppetry in general and the different ways it could manifest. So we don't see a lot of sketches at this point that are just technical performances, but that itch is still going to be there for him to find different ways to play with the scene. Yeah, we're going to see a couple of those in the next episode. One in particular, that's exactly that. Weirdness aside, I thought it was a fine opening number, but it didn't it didn't do much for me. But it was, it was a trip being my first HD Muppet experience watching <laughs> um, this feather duster like coming at me so then we get into our backstage story turns out that scooter believes he has seen a phantom call me kooky call me crazy but i think there's a phantom of the muppet show you're kooky you're crazy no i'm serious i was just up in the star's dressing room and i saw the most ghoulish fiendish looking face in the closet that was me clown i was hanging up the wardrobe no 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 after you left Listen, Kermit, I'm serious. There's something here that should be looked into. Yes, your head. It's kind of a comedy of errors where, like, not comedy of errors, but, like, everyone doesn't believe in it until they see it, but Kermit's, like, the last one to believe. He's also kind of the first one to believe, but we'll get to that in a bit. Scooter, and this is on Muppet Wiki. I'm going to give him the credit for this because this is a funny observation. Scooter is in the guest star's dressing room, and Scooter says that he saw a ghoulish, fiendish-looking face in the closet. But what they point out is what Scooter was doing in the guest star's closet is not explained. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a fair point. It's a very fair point. Why was he hanging out in the supermodel's closet? I mean, you've got three guesses and the first two don't count. Yeah. Twiggy's not part of the backstage story. Like, she's... Not at all. Yeah, especially after the Valley Harper episode where it was very integrated. Um, It does feel like a step back towards the way it was before. Listen, not every guest has to interact backstage, but Twiggy exists in her sketches and that's it. That's going to be our ongoing backstage story. Now, I, I, I guess I promised I would admit things like this. This one scared the shit out of me as a kid. Like you never see him like hiding in the closet, but the but 
when I started watching this episode today, I was like, oh man, there's that scene where like he's hiding in the closet. There's no scene where he's hiding in the closet, but I've connected the dots in my head because it's described that way. So I've always been afraid of this moment where Hilda actually like finds the Phantom sitting in the back of the closet and laughing. And that's been in my head for 40 years <laughs> and it didn't actually happen. Apparently I just did the math. If there's a Phantom of the Muppet Show, I'm a monkey's uncle. <laughs> Anybody got a banana? So Gonzo, and he doesn't get to do this often, Gonzo comes out to introduce our guest, but he can't get her name right. Right now, I'd like to introduce the lovely Leafy, that Barky, no, Branchy, uh, Twiggy. Do I get credit for being close? Gonzo continues to be probably the stupidest character of the season. Twiggy's first number. So this is kind of a, how would you put this? Because she's a model, I guess this is kind of what a model would do, right? She's having a press conference? I didn't have any concept of Twiggy. Her having a mononym means that she's probably either a model or a musician, typically. But It is weird. It's a, it's a press conference. One one note I did write down, uh, Kermit's wearing his like his like Sesame Street reporter jacket in it, mm-hmm. which I thought was a nice touch. But yeah, she's doing a press conference, a press junket, whatever you want to call it. She's kind of, yeah, she's playing herself. And there's no introduction to this, really. There's no, like, we come into it, she's giving a press conference. And then they ask her who the most important people and places in her life are. And she breaks into song. Now, if you were doing this today, there's no way in hell you could afford this. She breaks out into, in my life. There are places I remember all my life. One of the most famous Beatles songs ever from Rubber Soul. And she sings it to a montage of shots of her when she's younger. Didn't feel like the Muppet Show at all. All these like fading shots of her remembering her past. Kind of, but she was kind of a non-entity. So I was, there was a benefit of the doubt aspect to it where I assumed that she'd lived a life in the audience listening to it at the time. This would have meant something to them. Do you know how old she was here? guess her early to mid 20s she's 27 i don't think when you're 27 you get a looking back on your life montage i don't know i i i felt it to be a little silly it's kind of like you know when bands put out a greatest hits album after like three records <laughs> oh that's sad it just didn't feel uh, it felt a little little forced but yeah so twiggy sings again it's crazy but sings in my life by lennon and mccartney but there's not a whole lot else to the sketch it's just her singing while they're showing pictures of her that's just the whole thing it's like she's singing a tribute to herself because she's died. What'd you think of her voice? I'm going to be honest. It doesn't stick out good or bad to me at this point. Yeah. And I watched it like a day ago. It didn't pull me out of the scene. It didn't blow me away. She had done some singing lessons and acting lessons and had put out or was about to at least put out some records. So she did have a recording career that was, you know, she was never a superstar with that, but it was fairly successful, at least early on. Also, comparatively, the episode that will follow this one has a a significantly more distinctive voice. Yes, it does. (laughs) I would say one of the most distinctive voices. But yeah, uh, one of the most famous Beatles songs of all time here on The Muppet Show. We return to backstage. Fozzie and Gonzo were freaking out about the Phantom. Hilda and Kermit don't believe it. I forget. I wrote down poor Hilda, such low self-esteem, but I don't remember what it was. Oh, because Gonzo thought he saw the Phantom. I just saw the most terrifying face peering out from behind a sewing machine. 
Oh, that was me again, you nitwit. No, it was after you left. Oh, scaredy cat. She's actually one of my favorite Muppets of the first season. And then at the very end of it, the Phantom reveals himself. To us, though, not to any of the characters. And it is, of course, Uncle Deadly from the Vincent Price episode. Right now, the ever-popular Wayne and Wanda and their version of that great oldie, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Oh, let it work, let it work. How far do Wayne and Wanda get into their next one? Not very, but can we just take a second to acknowledge that Sam is at that point in his employment where he's staying at his job because it's just familiar at this point, but between Wayne and Wanda and some of the other sketches we're going to see him involved in, you can see him just like... I'm smarter than this. I went to college. What am I doing here? I'm going to disagree with you. I don't think Sam is employed at all. Fair point, actually. (laughs) Here's my theory on Sam. I think he's not well. And I think he hangs around and they let him hang around. And he thinks he's the standards and practices guy. But they're just a little theater. There's no television. There's no FCC to regulate what they're doing. What is his job? I don't think he has one. I think he stands around and he's judgmental about people. But everyone feels sorry for him because he thinks... He's this important, intelligent, erudite, sophisticated bird. He truly is not. Wayne and Wanda sing Let It Snow, which, of course, is a classic Christmas song. And then they get covered with a pile of snow. But I did like at the end, Wayne actually says, Funny! (laughs) Wayne's starting to think it's funny, too, how stupid this is. Now, this is a weird combination. Gonzo and Muppy are getting in bed to go to sleep. (laughs) Since when is Muppy Gonzo's dog? We, we saw the pride. We haven't really fully seen the fall of Muppy. I don't, I think this is pretty much it, though. Is this the last time we see Muppy? I'm not saying it's the last time we see him. I'm saying, like, any moment could be the last time we see him, though. <laughs> That's really sad. I don't mean it in the dark way. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I don't know when, I don't know when Muppy's last episode is, but I know there will be a last episode. Muppy and Gonzo were going to bed, and Twiggy comes in, and they ask for a bedtime story. Muppy here really likes the poems of A.A. A. Milne. You wouldn't know one, would you? No one. I've rehearsed one. Nice little meta joke. And she recites The King's Breakfast by A.A. Milne, published in a collection called When We Were Very Young, which is the same collection that had Halfway Down the Stairs and actually featured the very first appearance of Winnie the Pooh in that book, 1927. Hmm. But so it's like a story from that kind of set the music. And it's how would you describe the scene, though, the sketch? She's narrating. The king asked the queen and the queen asked the dairymaid. Could we have some butter for the royal slice of bread? The queen asked the dairymaid. The dairymaid said, certainly. I'll go and see the cow now, before she goes to bed. Yeah, she's narrating it. Um, she's, she's active in it. There is no fourth wall. And the king in the story is our good friend, King Rupert. Formerly known, of course, as King Goshposh, but King Rupert II. We haven't seen him in a while. It's good to see him. And with his wife, the queen, did she, did she knows who the queen was? It was so hard for me not to assume that it was Beaker. I know it's not. No, it's uh, Featherstone from the Frog Prince, his uh, royal vizier, the mm-hmm. prime minister or whatever. It's like the same. It's, I don't know if it's the same puppet, but it's the same design. They just put longer hair. He was the applause sign. Spontaneous applause. As you know, this is my last day as your king. Expression of regret. I don't know, it's hard to explain, right? It's an A.A. Milne poem about a king and his breakfast and he likes butter on his bread. Yeah, they wanted, I think he wanted like late night butter and she wanted to go down to the cow, or she was asked to go down to the cow to get it. And the cow was like, I'm going to sleep. Tell him to try marmalade. 
And then he's like, I never ask for anything, which is what anyone who always asks for a bunch of stuff will say is, I don't ask for much. Nobody. He whimpered. Could call me a fussy man. I only want a little bit of butter for my bread. We're going to see more sketches, I think, like this. But this is the first one. I mean, this is this was something I don't think we've seen before. This is probably where the association with Shelley Duvall got a lot stronger, too. I was more taken aback by the format, just because mm. it's not it's not something we've seen with their, her telling a story, them acting it out. It's this poem. It's kind of a song because there's music. I don't know. It, it's really it's kind of a hard thing to explain because it's just her reciting this Milne poem that we know Jim was a big fan of A.A. Mill. But it was, good, it was good to see King Rupert. At the dance, Sam the Eagle makes maybe the best joke of his damn life. What's the difference between immoral and illegal? Uh, immoral is uh, doing bad things. Illegal is me with a tummy ache. I didn't write it. Good stuff, Sam. Good pun. Statler and Walter for dancing again together, mm-hmm. but this time Statler's trying to lead. Kermit, so so Kermit's in at the dance, which is a pretty rare occasion. Well, yeah, but sometimes you've got to let that inner animal out. That's got. I think that's the grump puppet. Once Sam and Friends was over, and they started doing visual thinking with Kermit in the Harry the Hipster role. Grump was usually kind of the old man who was trying to visual think but couldn't. And he's been in a couple other things, like I think the string quartet scene for Ed Sullivan and things like that. But uh, so you've got Grump, but he's got a wig on saying his name is Mary Louise and he's dancing with Kermit. He gives Kermit a dip animal style. <laughs> now I want a double double. And then he like throws Kermit into the chandelier. Yeah. After he it's dips. Call back to the Ben Vrain episode. We have our UK. Our UK spots pretty straightforward. I was less nervous about the candles this time, but that's not the same thing as not being nervous. <laughs> I wrote down, uh oh, more wobbly candles. Is Nick OK? That's in my notes. <laughs> I just don't want Ralph to catch fire. Rolf plays Minuet in G Major by Beethoven. his six minuets for orchestra but all this is is rolf is playing this very beautiful you know classic beethoven piece and he keeps making little mistakes but that's it pretty straightforward rolf loves beethoven so he never got his picture on bubblegum cards did he have you ever seen his picture on a bubblegum card hmm how can you say someone is great who's never had his picture on bubblegum cards so then we get one that again it feels like maybe later Muppet Show, different from anything we've had before, which is the Venda face. It felt like a, a Muppet Labs bit. Yeah, it, this is something Bunsen would make, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Hello, I am Venda face, the world's first fully automatic psychiatric machine. So it's a shrink in a box. Well, turns out it's a con artist in a box. But a very observant one. Fozzie wants to be analyzed by the Venda face, and so he puts in some money, and then it tells him to put in more money, and then it tells him to put in more money and more money, and then its conclusion it comes to is, You are much too generous. They built this Venda face machine just for this sketch, but David Laser insisted they use it a couple more times because it cost too much money to just use once. <laughs> so I think it shows up maybe in the next episode, not the next episode, but the one after in like 121. What is the other thing it says to him at the end? He starts getting kind of aggressive with it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 
Yeah. You also have a rotten temper. And then the, some arms come out of it and grab him. This thing's kind of scary. There was a, a TV series on in the 90s called Erie, Indiana. And there was an episode that centered around Ascension ATM. <laughs> okay. That was like just very, very lonely because people only went to it when they needed to get money out of it. And like one kid who was also really lonely decided to be its friend and it got a little too attached. Okay. <laughs> That was like my first association with Vindaface, and if that if Vindaface had been there earlier in the season, I could have totally seen it bonding with Fozzie because Fozzie or Fozzie got no respect from anyone else. I just had Fozzie. Wow, I'm tired. Yeah, it's alright. <laughs> We're backstage again. Kermit still doesn't believe in any of the Phantom nonsense. Hilda believes in it now because she's come face to face with the Phantom. Although for a second there, she thought it was Gonzo. Poor Gonzo. We had the great moment where Kermit goes off finally. He goes on a little one of his Kermit tangents. He's like, All I see are a bunch of Muppets spreading mass hysteria. Now, there's no such thing as a phantom. That's final. Period. End of report. Uh, Kermit, Kermit, what? what the has a skull-like head, fiery green eyes, and a horn cape? I don't know. I don't know either, but it's right behind you! <laughs> You will notice that I didn't fall for their joke. And if it isn't a joke, I mean, if there is someone or something behind me, there is no doubt a logical explanation for it. So I shall now just turn slowly around and see what is going on here. Kermit turns around, stares right at Uncle Deadly, takes a big gulp. Uh, pardon me, sir, uh, but is there a logical explanation for your presence here? <laughs> Apparently, there is no logical explanation. <laughs> I just, I thought the timing on it was really good. Uncle Deadly looks a bit like Gonzo, but not really. Yeah, I can't quite tell what Uncle Deadly is. Uh, you know, some things refer to him as a dragon. He's, he's the phantom of the theater. We'll find, I mean, we'll find, he's an actor. That's what he really is. We have a Muppet News Flash where Mrs. Lois Thomas, played by Twiggy, she's eaten an entire tractor. Basically, she should be like, she's like Gonzo, but successful. <laughs> it's a fair statement. But yeah, so she eats a tractor and then he doesn't believe her. So then she eats the microphone that she's talking into. The Muppet Newsman is very exasperated by his guests. I feel like he and Sam should team up to do a weekend update type thing so we can start getting exasperated with him. Him and Sam would have been great because it would have been Jim and Frank. Oh, yeah. We get to the meat of the Phantom of the Muppet Theater. I wrote down Thudge McGurk. Why did I write that down? Oh, yeah, because it's the same story as Thudge McGurk, who we met last week, the three-eyed actor that had disappeared that Statler and Mordorf were talking about. Mm. So the Phantom reveals himself to uh, to Kermit, explains that he was once a great actor who played a bunch of roles. And then I played my most difficult role, <laughs> Othello. <laughs> but opening night, I was killed. Uh, well, I, I'm very sorry to hear that. Who killed you? The critics. And since then, he has been haunting the Muppet Show to make sure that no one, so he'll never perform again, and uh, to prevent anyone else from performing in the theater, to haunt the theater. Jerry does a really good job of making him funny, but also pretty spooky. And then he gives Kermit a warning to leave Poppy He's not going to follow through on that at all. Like, at all. The Phantom leaves, and then the other Muppets show up, and they reveal it's all been a big joke. It's all been George in a mask. Now, first of all, no way in hell that is George in a mask. And they're all like, oh, we're playing a joke on you. And then Uncle Deadly shows back up upstairs and screams again. Leave or 
be doomed! So you're right. Like, Kermit's both the last one and the first one to believe in him. Mm-hmm. Although Fozzie's already seen him, but I guess he thought that was all part of the prank. We haven't seen George up to this point in the episode, though, so maybe he just thought he was in on it. We've been following George for a while now, ever since the Valentine's special. He's, he's, there's no way he could pull that off. I don't buy that for a second. And then uh, after they all run away... Uncle Deadly declares that this was the greatest performance of his life. That's the end. That's the end of the Phantom of the Muppet Show story. Leave or be doomed. They don't leave and they're not doomed. They just kind of, it just kind of ends. There's no payoff to it. <laughs> now it'd be one thing if going forward, there was still this phantom haunting the Muppet Show, but no, he's just, it becomes a character and a minor character at that. But he's never presented as, as this phantom ever again. I don't know what a bigger payoff for it would have been, though. I don't know either. I just ending with a threat <laughs> and not resolving that threat just doesn't feel complete. Now we get Twiggy's final number. All of a sudden, she's a country girl. <laughs> um, oh, what is oh he was Kermit calls her something. Oh, he calls her a soul sister. Our guest star tonight was born in London, but all you folks in Enid, Oklahoma, better stand by to hear a soul sister. Ladies and gentlemen, the down-home sound of the incomparable Twiggy. He, did you catch that? I did. He's the, he called it, I was like, Kermit, that is not what a soul sister is. Um, Twiggy comes out and uh, with, with the hillbilly singer, which you remember the um, put another log on the fire with Candace Bergen? Mm-hmm. They look exactly alike, but they're very different Muppets. But they had the same skin tone, the same facial hair, the same wardrobe, the same hat, but they're completely different Muppets. I mean, to be fair, the last one we saw might have died, so... <laughs> That's true. Maybe this is his brother. <laughs> it might have been his much shorter brother. And it's him and the Googleala Jubilee Joe Band and Twiggy, and they sing a song called Ain't Nobody's Business But My Own, which is written by Irving Taylor in 1950. You got a guy you love a Sunday, then you got another a Monday. That ain't nobody's business but my own. Sitting by the phone waiting for your call, you're out somewhere having a ball. That ain't nobody's business but my own. He wrote a lot of like novelty songs, and actually, he also wrote uh, Pafalafagai, which now has a warning on Disney Plus for its insensitive cultural content. But he's the same writer that wrote Pafalafagai. And Twiggy sings his country song. All night long you're playing poker. Tell me, what's the name of that joke? That ain't nobody's business but my own. I come over, say here on him, and then I hear the back door slam. That ain't nobody's business but my own. Does she feel like a country star? So, Chad, I don't listen to a lot of country music, but... The heck you say. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But the central thesis of the song was that ostensibly these two are in a couple, but just don't want to be, like, there's no accountability. It's like, it's my business. I do what I want. It's your business. You do what you want. Pretty modern. It is. Yeah. There's a... I think it was on Stankonia. <laughs> I'll Call Before I Come has the same central premise. There's like, just... I mean, when we're together, it's great. But outside of that, there's no object permanence. I'm going to do what I want. It's great. Uh, you had me at Stanko and you. And honestly, it seems like a, a stab at ethical non-monogamy, so good for them. A fun closing number, Twiggy with her little cowboy hat. You're right, though, she's not. Notice there's no talk spot, so we don't actually get anything personal with her. But when she's on scene with them, she does all right. Oh, she does, yes. We've seen the the guests who are a bit more wooden around the Muppets, or they might be comfortable in a certain element, but that's not something that's very flexible. She was able to fold into any scene that she was in. She just, it's not fair to say that she was a footnote on the episode, but the, the real thrust of the episode was the Phantom. Yeah, I wouldn't call her a footnote, but you're right. I do, I do agree with you. I actually liked her in all of her things. I think she's game. 
for the whole episode. I think she does a very good job. I just wish, you know, we got to sit there and talk to Candace Bergen about photography and we didn't care. I wish Kermit had a moment to talk to her <laughs> about something. I mean, I know I don't love the talk spots, so maybe I'm being a hypocrite, but we didn't get anything out of her. I think it's possible to not love the talk spots while acknowledging what they might add to the show. You never got to hear Twiggy talk, right? It was all characters or singing. We never actually had had her have an interaction with anybody except for that little tiny moment with Gonzo and uh, our boy Muppy. And like the closing, but that doesn't really count. Yeah, and then we, we get to the closing after the song and uh, Twiggy says she had a good time and she says she even liked Uncle Deadly and then uh, the Muppets, a bunch of them rushed the stage. The last thing we see of the Phantom is him just on stage like pretty kosher with everybody. Now he's just going to become a character and I just feel like oh man, we could have at least got a second part out of this Phantom thing. I mean, five years down the road, are they still under the threat of Leave or be doomed! You wonder if they're like closing up shop and they're like, hey, I thought we were doomed. And he's like, I didn't say when. (laughs) To me, it was hard to kind of come up with a final thought on this episode because of what you're talking about, because of how I feel like it's two episodes. I mean, the stuff with Twiggy is good and it is in a whole other world from the Phantom stuff. Yeah, I'll I'll agree with you. I don't, it doesn't feel integrated. It feels like two distinct pieces of entertainment that we're just cutting back and forth between. So that doesn't make it to me a super satisfying episode, but that doesn't mean it's not a good episode because I think it is. It's a solid one. Welcome, dear friends, to another edition of The Muppet Show. And we're very honored to have as our special guest star one of the true giants of the Broadway musical stage, Miss Ethel Merman. Ethel Merman, born Ethel Agnes Zimmerman on January 16th, 1908. She's known primarily for her musical theater roles. I think that she's... I wasn't a theater kid, but in as much as there is any sort of American theater canon, she's pretty high up on that list. She's Hall of Fame. Yeah, is... Is that an official title or is that like a... No. I don't know if she's Mount Rushmore, mm. but she's definitely Hall of Fame. She grew up in an Episcopalian church. Her parents are very strict about the attendance. Music was a very big part of her life from pretty early on. She saw a number of shows at the Palace Theater as a small child and liked to do impersonations as she got home. Out of high school, she got hired as a stenographer, eventually becoming the personal secretary to Caleb Braggs, the president of Braggs Claysreth, which was actually kind of a pretty cushy gig for her because her boss was regularly just taking extended leaves from the office to go race which allowed her to catch up on sleep from the time that she spent performing at private parties and eventually nightclubs overnight. She met her agent, Lou Irwin, who managed to get her an audition for Warner Brothers pretty early on, and they got her in on an exclusive six-month contract. The only problem with that was they didn't give her anything to do. So she quit her job, and she was just sort of sitting there, and she eventually allowed them to work it so that she could go back to performing in nightclubs. She was signed on to replace Ruth Edding in Follow the Leader in 1930. Outside of that, she had a successful seven-week run at the Brooklyn Paramount. The thing is, this is the 30s, but she was making $500 a week. I haven't adjusted for inflation, but she was doing really, really well for someone that became a stenographer out of high school. Right. She continued working in a number of small films. If I were a bigger cinema geek, I would know which ones to list out. Um, just a few titles. She was in George White's Scandals, Take a Chance, and a number of other things. She left Hollywood for a minute, went back to theater, came back to Hollywood for We're Not Dressing in 1934. And I'm going to gloss over because she's got a lot of Broadway credits. A lot. And we're going to cover some of them when we get to the show because there's there's a heavy focus on that. But she was very, very prolific None of the stars we've had on the show up to this point 
have been working in positions they didn't love, except potentially Twiggy for her modeling career. But to see the body of work that Ethel has in that specific focused space of stage musicals, arguably musicals in general, but specifically on the stage, this was something that definitely dominated her life. She was married and divorced four times. Sounds about right. She had two children. Excuse me. Let me double check that because I might have. <laughs> I might have skipped one. Might have lost one. Two children. Uh, the, that was Ethel, born in 1942, and Robert Jr., born in 1945. She was notorious for having a pretty brash demeanor, as we'll see on the show. Anyone she's in a room with is not someone she's stuck in a room with. They're stuck in the room with her. She owns every moment she's on screen. She would get in trouble for profanity on occasion, and seeing her in the show, I have a lot of affection for her, but she also reminded me of every pre-Karen Karen customer that I've ever had to deal with <laughs> in customer service who's like very, very self-assured, especially if she's wrong. And on screen, that's amazing. In life, not so much, but <laughs> she would become forgetful as she went on in age. In 1983... She underwent an exploratory surgery because she did have a lot of memory problems and processing problems. She was diagnosed with stage 4 glioblastoma, which is a very aggressive brain cancer. Uh, she would eventually pass away on February 15th, 1984, 10 months after being diagnosed with the brain cancer. Um, she died in her home in Manhattan at 76 years old. On the night that she passed, all 36 theaters on Broadway dimmed their lights at 9 p.m. in her honor. Ethel Merman is a name that I've heard. Thus far, we're about one for two for Muppet guests that I've recognized before seeing them on the show. Despite her passing before I was born, Ethel Merman as an entity is someone that I've generally been aware of, and that's without having much of a stake or interest in musical theater. I can't tell you why or where I would have been familiar with her before this episode, but her name was pretty well known to me, and I knew generally what she was related to. She's amazing in this episode. Ethel Merman was an icon, and she was so much of an icon that she has been parodied a lot. Her voice is so distinctive. To me, she is the definition of a big, brassy broad. I think she shows up in Airplane 2. What's this world? It's Lieutenant Hurwitz. Severe shell shock. Thinks he's Ethel Merman. You'll be swell. You'll be great. Gonna have the whole world on a plate. Starting here, start now. Honey, everything's coming up. War as hell. Her voice is so distinctive, her demeanor so distinctive that she became not a joke, not a joke at all. She was always very well respected, but she became a, she became a meme before there were memes. I can absolutely see that. I've been aware of her my whole life, too, but I didn't know very much about her when I was a kid. She strikes me as someone you would love to have as an aunt. Yeah. <laughs> but probably have to, like, hate to deal with as... Your mom? I was going to say, like, on the other side of a counter anywhere. But yeah, probably as your mom. She was so loud and she was so full of personality. I think she kind of became shorthand for her type. If that makes sense. I can absolutely see that. I mean, she had the pipes. <laughs> she absolutely did. She had an amazing voice. A big, brassy, brash, powerful voice. This is episode number 122 with our very special guest star, Ethel Merman. Produced November 1976. Debuted February of 77 in the US and April in the UK. Credits are as they have been all season, ever since episode three, I guess. I'm not going to say there's a new face in this episode, but there is a new face with Fozzie's cousin. 
<laughs> but we're never going to see him again. But I just like the fact that we have, they took the old Fozzie puppet and they put a bowler hat on him and made him Fozzie's cousin in the audience. We haven't seen a lot of Miss Piggy for the last few episodes. No, she shows up in this one. She does. But like, I was thinking about that because... We didn't mention her last week at all. Because it felt like there in the middle of the season, they were figuring Piggy out. And they had, they had realized that she needed to be front and center. But you're right. She has kind of slunk into the background. We haven't had any veterinarians' hospitals either. I don't think she's been... It's true. I mean, that's not going to last. <laughs> As we all know. But you're right. No, she has been fairly absent. And then there's another character that shows up that I will talk about when we get to them. So we do open with Piggy and Kermit. Oh, Kermit, my love. Since Ethel Merman is our guest, as a tribute, I plan to sing a medley of all her great hits. Uh, uh, Piggy, why would anyone want to hear you sing Miss Merman's songs when Miss Merman is here to sing them herself? And so Piggy decides that she's going to sing a medley of uh, as a tribute to Irving Berlin, but that never materializes. So our first, we don't have an opening. Well, that's kind of a, that's an opening musical number, I guess. We have Java. Now, have you seen this one before? Because um, they did this on Sullivan. I've seen things that they've done like this. It reminds me of the uh, You Are My Sunshine sketch a bit because of the... Fire extinguisher that they used as a weapon for so long with the Muppets, basically. <laughs> so Java is, of course, it's an instrumental for piano and orchestra from 1963. Um, this is this one's done by... I think this is Al Hurt. Um, it was originally a piano piece, and then Al Hurt, the great trumpet player turned into a trumpet piece and recorded it and Henson used it several times over the years I think the debut of this bit was on the Ed Sullivan show missed it by that much Java debuted on a show called Fanfare in July of 1965 which was actually Al Hurt's own television show then it made its appearance on Sullivan four months later with these two... I thought of them as slinkies but they look like slinkies Um, one big and one short you're right it's a lot like the Hugga Wugga sketches, where you've got a couple of monsters, one is kind of a bully to the other one. That is a classic, or at least in my experience, older brother, younger brother dynamic, I, you just want them to go away. Let me do what I'm doing and go away. Yeah, the big one just wants the other one to go away. Um, but there's a lot of show-off puppetry in it, a lot of great rhythm work. And uh, yeah, and of course at the end, the little guy gets the uh, upper hand. When they did this on Sullivan, Henson and Oz uh, performed the two puppets, and the explosion was provided by Jerry Jewell shooting a fire extinguisher. Right before Sullivan introduced them, Jerry realized that they left the fire extinguisher in the dressing room, which was on the second floor. So Jerry raced up the elevator, and hearing the music through the speakers in the elevator, like through the PA in the in the thing, so he knew how much time he had because he could hear the music the whole time. <laughs> and he ran up, got the fire extinguisher, ran back down, and managed to get back in the elevator and managed to get right back in the stage just in time to fire off the fire extinguisher. <laughs> it's hard to explain Java. Look it up. I would just tell people to look it up. <laughs> this week's backstage story is it's about representation. I feel like it's a preamble to collective bargaining, but if it goes as well as it goes in this episode, they don't really have much to worry about. Fozzie tells Kermit that Kermit's got to meet with his his agent. At first, I thought, is this like Gags Beasley where we're never going to meet him? This is another character <laughs> that Fozzie has. He's got Gags Beasley, his writer, who we never meet, and now he's going to have his agent. Uh, he wants to renegotiate his contract, and as Kermit reminds him of... Fozzie, you don't have a contract. He doesn't actually have a contract. So then we get Ethel's big first number, but it's really like 75 numbers. <laughs> so this very easily could have felt like 
very crammed in or rushed or any number of other things. But it's it's an interesting parallel to Twiggy's first song in the last episode, where Ethel's been around. She's got that body of work. There's a real genuine joy that she presents in singing all of these different bits of songs that I assume she sang before with the Muppets. And every time she transitions, it's seamless. What I, I thought was interesting watching it, it's, it's actually, it's a medley of Broadway tunes, but it's actually a medley of duets. <laughs> she's partnered up with a different Muppet for each duet until we get to the last song. She's sitting there and she's got a, a makeup mirror in front of her like you would backstage at a Broadway show. And they kind of use that to play with it, the characters. And a character at a time comes in and, and she sings a, a show tune with them. Just to go through it real quick, her and Kermit sing You're the Top, which is a Cole Porter song. The Louvre Museum, you're a melody of a symphony by Strauss. You're a Bandle Bonnet, a Shakespeare sonnet. You're Mickey Mouse. Fozzie and her sing Friendship, which is also Cole Porter. Rolf and Jimmy Dean actually sang that when they reunited on the Ed Sullivan show. If you ever feel so happy you land in jail, I'm your bail. It's friendship, friendship, just perfect friendship. Uh, Delovely, which is also a Cole Porter song. She sings with Scooter and Gonzo. Originally, that song was sung by Ethel and Bob Hope in a play called uh, Red Hot and Blue. I understand the reason why your sentimental is so am I. It's delightful. It's delicious. It's the lovely. Then there's Together Wherever We Go. She sings with the two-headed monster, which felt like an odd choice. I guess the joke is with the Together Wherever We Go is the joke, but uh, that's from that's a Stephen Sondheim song from Gypsy. Then with Uncle Deadly, she sings You're Just In Love, which is Irving Berlin. You're singing and there's no one there. You would. Then probably to me the highlight, definitely, is her and Piggy singing Anything You Can Do, which is also Irving Berlin from the uh, great musical Annie Get Your Gun. That one's amazing. And you know you can reach, I can go higher. I can sing anything higher than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. No, you can't. No, you can't. And then they finish off with a song called Mutual Admiration Society. They all sing together. It's from a 1956 musical called Happy Hunting. And uh, Rolf and Jimmy Dean had also sung that before on the Jimmy Dean show. Mutual Admiration Society. All of this is great. And you're right. She does a great job going from song to song to song. But come on, it's all about her and Piggy. Oh, yeah. There's a reason that was the uh, the penultimate. Yeah. Yeah. It's the climax. You have two great divas of the stage duking it out. One of them maybe at this point only in her own mind, but still. And uh, notice, I mean, Uncle Deadly sings in this. Like you said, like, like I pointed out last time, Uncle Deadly is now just part of the chorus. As we're getting to the end of this season, we have the gift of hindsight knowing exactly which Muppets are still going to be huge stars. And I think outside of probably Kermit and Fozzie, it's not really known at this point in their production who their breakouts are. You don't think you can tell? Piggy's come to the forefront a bit more, but we haven't seen her for a couple of episodes. Yeah. And Wayne and Wanda and Hilda and George are going to disappear. Coming to the end of the season, you you definitely can tell, at least at this stage, Kermit and Fozzie are the two leads. Gonzo is a bit of a nothing in this season. Like, he's he's kind of nobody. I'd say Scooter is as big of a character as Piggy, if not more. 
in this first season. That's fair, yeah. Scooter has the benefit as a character of always being around Kermit because he's mm-hmm. his gopher and Kermit's the star of the show. It's kind of like how Rolf never stood a chance in the backstage stuff because Rolf and Kermit can't really be in a scene together because Scooter always has an excuse to be in a scene backstage. Like he gets a lot of screen time. But yeah, I would say, you know, Piggy's a standout and she has her moments, but you're right. I don't think that's a sure thing. But then you get a moment like this that reminds you that, oh, no, Piggy's a star. (laughs) I would so love to see the making of this. I so want to see Frank Oz on the ground holding Miss Piggy, singing his ass off with Ethel Merman. (laughs) There's plenty of great shots of, like, male guest stars being uncomfortable by the fact that they're being romanced by a pig that's being puppeted by a man. But uh, that was awkward for some guest stars in the future where they're like, wait, Piggy's a dude? (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> they have to cuddle up with her at times. Like Roger Moore, there's an episode with Roger Moore in the future where he gets pretty cuddly with Piggy. And I think he was actually a little uncomfortable when he realized it was actually Frank. My girls, the first time they found out that Miss Piggy was a boy, they lost their minds. They were not pleased. Now they're just like, oh, yeah, it's Frank Oz. Because, you know, they're my kids. <laughs> an absolute showcase for Ethel's talents and also dripping with history. I, I don't know for a fact if she's sung all of these songs on stage. But they're all from musicals, they're all from Broadway shows, and it just, I mean this in the nicest way possible, there's no effort from her, it's effortless. This is what she do. She makes it look easy, and that's that's not saying that it's easy at all, what she does is a very impressive skill set. But this is what she does, and she kills yeah. it. <laughs> and she kills it. I remember Ethel Merman in the opening of Panama Hattie. You're old enough to remember Teddy Roosevelt in the opening of the Panama Canal. <laughs> that was a good singer. So then we meet Fozzie's agent. He's real. His name is Irving Bazaar. But we kind of meet him, right? No, we meet him. He's just short in stature. Kermit gets mean in this. He does, but... Fozzie says, like, don't make fun of her for being short. And uh, Kermit can't help it. This is an agent. Where's your office, Irving? In your hat? (laughs) (laughs) Very funny. Very funny. Hey, who else do you handle? Rich Little? Tiny Tim? I wouldn't handle you, I'd get what? What kind of talk is that? Will you get out? Take this guy and get out of here. Kermit can be nasty at times, but he usually has some degree of tact, and that tact is just gone because... It's all the short jokes he wanted to make when Paul Williams was there, but he promised not to. (laughs) (laughs) So he's just unloading on this guy who says he's Fozzie's agent. He's like Babu Frick from Rise of Skywalker in a, in a hat. Apparently Kermit insulting him for his height doesn't go well for contract negotiations. But don't worry, I'm sure I'm sure they've got Kermit right where they want him. We got him right where we want him. We have a blackout. Ethel apparently has a mouse in her dressing room. <laughs> and uh, This is something that a lot of Muppet people are going to, Muppet guest stars are going to run into, which is they complain about the animals around only to realize that the animal is you know, part of the family. So she complains that there's a mouse in her dressing room and Hilda explains to her that the mouse sings in the band. Ethel calls the show, show a zoo and an animal shows up. We have like something that's kind of similar to Lena Horn, right? Where Ethel like, yells at him. She's significantly more in control of the situation than Lena was. But Animal judges her pitch though. Mm-hmm. Like she screams or she makes a note and Animal's like, perfect pitch. And then she beats him up. The UK spot this week was weird, man. It had a lot of things that we'd never seen before. First of all, starring Statler and Waldorf, not something we've seen. And and go ahead. What 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 is what is the UK spot? <laughs> Miss Mousy shows up in Statler's I think it was Statler's teacup, it might have been Waldorf's. I think it's Statler's, yeah. And sings a song called Don't Sugar Me, but 
technique better than I do. It's almost like the cup is superimposed. Yeah. It's like either a green screen slash like rear projection situation or just like optically printed one on top of the other. Because of the degradation of the quality of the image, my guess is it's optically printed. So the song Miss Mousy sings is Don't Sugar Me. It's by Walt Kelly, who was the creator of the comic strip Pogo, which was not only Jim Henson's favorite comic strip as a kid, but also one of the big influences on the Muppets. So this was uh, from the book song, The Songs of Pogo, and this is one of those music books that Jim's family would have had when he was a kid. You know, it came out in 1956, so it's perfect timing. 100% the reason she's singing this song is this is a song that Jim Henson has known for like most of his life. It's just weird seeing it in a UK spot. It's weird seeing them in a UK spot. The Miss Mousy thing is incredibly strange because it's two different pieces of film. Even though it's well done, it still feels a little displaced and strange. The song was whatever. It was fine. But their faces while it's going on were amusing me. (laughs) Fair, yeah. Watching them react to Miss Mousy, who we haven't really seen other than sitting in the audience since... uh, since Kermit went a courting. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. And you're going to fall, big mouth and all. Oh, So Piggy shows up again for the talk spot. I would flop these. I don't need a talk spot for Ethel Merman because she comes out the gate and she tells you what she's about. She's a Broadway star. I could have used a little time with Twiggy talking about what she did. But anyway, there's talks about Kermit and Ethel are talking about her Broadway career. Piggy comes in and basically tries to get some singing lessons. I don't know if it's the first time, but I know that Piggy calls Kermit Flipperface. This is not the first time she's called him. <laughs> okay. All right. So yeah, so they have a conversation. Piggy wants to be a singer, you know, get some advice in singing, and they have a little sing-off, and Ethel shatters a glass with her voice, which is obviously an effect. Now, look, Miss Piggy, let's face it. You either got it, or you ain't. Mm-hmm. And all the singing lessons in the world ain't gonna help you if you ain't got it. <laughs> now, let's hear you hit that high note of yours again. <clears throat> well, it shows promise. See, Kermit! But it, it, it's a bit subtle. Now, this is the way I would do it. I'm guessing people have done it in real life. It always seems like a movie BS thing that people make up. I don't think it's the kind of thing that would be as common as movies would have you think it is. Oh, no, absolutely not. I'm sure there's someone who can do it. Ethel Merman is kind of who Piggy wants to be. Mm-hmm. You can see, like, maybe one of the reasons we haven't seen Piggy as much is, like, what is a Piggy-Twiggy interaction other than, <laughs> other than the rhyme? What is a Piggy-Twiggy action going to be? But a Piggy and Ethel Merman scene, like, I don't think you can have Ethel Merman on your an episode and not have Piggy interact with her. It's too much of a perfect fit. Maybe in the previous episodes, they just didn't have scenes that Piggy would fit into or that they thought would be good. But here, like, there's no way you don't have Ethel Merman and Piggy hang out. They're soulmates. You mentioned this earlier. Jim was a huge fan of all sorts of types of puppetry. And actually, in the 80s, he actually did um, a series of six specials that he hosted in uh, 85 called The World of Puppetry, where he featured Sergei Ostaboroff, who wrote the uh, one of the books that he read to learn how to be a puppeteer. And one of those episodes is about an Australian puppeteer named Richard Bradshaw. Uh, we on the Muppets are very interested in puppets for some strange reason. 
Anyway, tonight we're really delighted to have with us a man who produces the world's funniest shadows. Here he is from Australia, our guest puppeteer, Mr. Richard Bradshaw. This is what you were talking about, right? Yeah. Just giving someone a showcase. This is a labor of love for Jim. I think while your average layperson might differentiate Muppets from other standard puppets, Jim understood them as a different expression of an art form that he loved. There was this intersection of pragmatism and adoration for the art form. And the the bit is great. It's a, it's a very simple bit. You see the punchline coming a mile away, but it works. And I don't, I can't remember the last time that I would have seen a shadow puppet show. If I were walking down the street somewhere and I saw someone putting this on, I would be entertained. I think when I was like five, I would have been bored out of my mind. But having followed <laughs> Jim's story, yeah. having understood his love of puppetry, it's just, you know, at this point, He's the biggest puppeteer in the world, and he's the only like famous puppeteer in the world, really, at this time. And so him using his show to give a platform to other puppeteers that are doing different things, I think is great. It feels like a quite a departure for the show. I think we're going to see a few more moments like it, but this is a very clear, like, the next two minutes, I'm giving this show to, to my colleague, and he's going to do his thing that has nothing to do with the Muppets. It's a little shadow play with an ostrich, a mouse, and a hippo. The first thing is them walking up a ladder and sliding down a slide and then they it shows them going over a tightrope and it's just really well done meticulous delicate shadow puppetry that's really impressive and now piggy comes backstage and she meets irving and this gets pervy hey how you doing baby kiddo sweetheart not bad looking for a big want me to handle you here's the thing now because of this we retroactively forgive kermit for the insults i already have an agent short stuff I don't want to be your agent. I just want to handle you. <laughs> the conversation does not end well for Irving. Handle this! <laughs> this this was some piggy violence I was all for. Yeah. Mess this little guy up. He's not meant to be a sympathetic character. No, he's not. The first scene is with Kermit insulting him, and, like, it almost makes him sympathetic. <laughs> but then we get this one, and he's a dirty old man. So now we don't like him. Fozzie's comedy act. It's, it's a strange one. It's all about the hecklers this time. Not only are Statler and Waldorf heckling him, but Fozzie's cousin is in the audience. <laughs> but even before he recognizes audience, the entire audience is heckling Fozzie. Yeah, because uh, there's another heckler, too. It's actually Leo, the pitch man in the Muppet pitch reel. Small children will love the cute, cuddly characters. Young people will love the fresh and innovative comedy. College kids and intellectual eggheads will love the underlying symbolism of everything. Freaky, long-haired, dirty, cynical hippies will love our freaky, long-haired, dirty, cynical Muppets because that is what show business is all about. But he is also the puppet previously known as Wally the Writer from the Muppet Valentine special, who was the puppet previously known as Fred the Elf from the Grand Santa Claus Switch. Fozzie's cousin is in the audience, and then, uh, <laughs> what's he say? He goes, oh, um, anyone who's a true Fozzie Bear, I'm going to turn my back, and anyone who's not a true Fozzie Bear fan can leave. Fozzie. You just can't do that, man. You just can't set yourself up like that. That's just... I mean, even his cousin leaves. Who are the only two people that don't leave? Statler and Waldorf. One, because I don't think they're allowed to. I think they probably have low jacks on. <laughs> is it possible this is just house arrest? Oh, that would be amazing. Is it possible that after the Nuremberg trials, and they were found guilty of lesser crimes as Nazi war criminals, that they are now like... They're like on house arrest, and they've made a deal where the only place they can go is the theater or home. Hey! Hey, how come you two guys are still there, huh? Did you lose your beds at the old fool's home? That's <laughs> <laughs> too late. They're not always mean. Not always. Sometimes they're just sad and old and dying. It's fine. 
so then we have a great negotiation scene. We get to see what kind of agent Irving really is. Kermit, my client won't work unless you give him twice as much money. Uh, yeah, I just saw how he handled that audience. But to show you what a good guy I am, I'll give him three times as much. We won't settle for less than four times as much. Uh, how about a compromise? Five times as much money. Six times as much. Uh, don't push it, Irv. See, Kermit looks like a very bad negotiator for a minute. <laughs> no, you kind of catch that out of the gate, because my immediate thought is, Fozzie didn't have a contract. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Fozzie doesn't have a going rate. Fozzie doesn't get paid anything. <laughs> no one on The Muppet Show gets paid. Maybe Kermit? Maybe the guest stars? This raises ethical questions. <laughs> it absolutely does. Um, <laughs> you know, the labor laws back then, a little different maybe, I guess. I guess you probably still had to pay people in the 70s. But uh, eventually, Kermit and Irving settle on paying Fozzie. Ready for this? This is my final offer. Ten times as much as he's making now. You got a deal. If you got paid ten times what you get paid right now, that'd be pretty cool, huh? Depending on a couple of things, but yeah. And then as Kermit leaves, Fozzie realizes... Ten times as much money. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I used to make nothing! Right. Ah. And, and ten times nothing is... Um... Math that my children could do. Just ten times nothing is... Nothing. Nothing. But Irving, an agent to the very end, reminds him... Yeah, right. And don't forget, I get 10% of that. Worth every penny. <laughs> See, this to me is a good payoff to the backstage sketch. He brings in his agent, his agent gets him a new deal, and it's just as terrible as the deal he had before. You might argue 10 times as terrible. <laughs> yeah. So Fozzie's super bummed about this. His agent has screwed him over. Kermit, his friend, has screwed him over. But to be fair, Kermit's got to keep the lights on, man. It's true, but we're almost a year into this production. At some point, Fozzie's going to have to eat. Hey, you know what? His payment is exposure, Nick. Haven't you ever heard that? Oh, God. <laughs> Don't get me You're started. You're doing this for credit and exposure. <laughs> oh, the life of freelancers. Listen, Fozzie, don't be discouraged. Even if you don't make a lot of money, you're doing what you love to do. Just look around you. The costumes, the scenery, the makeup, the props, the audience that lifts you when you're down. This is probably the third time, third or fourth time this has happened, where the guest star decides to sing a song to cheer up one of our sad Muppets. It's usually Fozzie or Gonzo. They're, they're the saddest. It's a number that starts backstage and then ends up on stage. When I think Ethel Merman, this is one of the songs I think about, which is There's No Business Like Show Business by Irving Berlin. But there's no business like show business, like no business I know. Everything about it is appealing. Everything the traffic will allow. Nowhere could you get that happy feeling when you are stealing that extra bow. Uh, this is also from Annie Get Your Gun, the great musical, which is a fictionalized story about Wild West sharpshooter Annie Oakley, who starred in Buffalo Bill's uh, Wild West shows. And this is just a Big Broadway number, with Ethel just tearing it up. I don't know if there was ever, like, a, a breaking point between, I guess, musicals like Annie Get Your Gun, which is admittedly a much older musical, and something like Rent, which I can't stand and will refrain from ranting about. There's No Business Like Show Business is one of those cultural touchstones that you're gonna hear referenced somewhere. Yeah. And 
it is interesting to see it in something approaching an original context with someone who would have made it famous. There's no business like show business, like no business I know. Everything about it is appealing. Everything the traffic will allow. And with no irony. Yeah, that's, I think that's the, the real clincher there. Like, she means it. Yeah, like with the um, the general crux of this episode is a sort of sincerity, which isn't unique to this episode, but if we were to compare this to, say, the uh, the Phyllis Diller episode, there was a lot of self-effacing, there was a lot of like very firmly planted tongue-in-cheek, whereas Ethel Merriman is going to be the person that comes in and tells you that she is an experience and means every word of the sentence. As much as I think this episode does cohere more than the Twiggy episode, she's just as distanced from the story, though, until this very end moment, right? I guess because there's a talk spot, there's a little more. There's the talk spot, there's the blackout. Yeah. I think that opening number, because she's interacting with so many of them, it's Twiggy. So there was an interesting parallel where Twiggy's was a celebration of herself and Ethel's was a celebration of herself. But Ethel's felt more storied. You know, it's it's hard. I mean, said I was I was literally a baby when this episode was made. You were less so. It's so it's hard to put ourselves in the mindset of someone in '76. But both of these people, both Twiggy and Ethel Merman, they come onto this show with baggage. They come with a history. When you tuned in in 1976, or actually in this case, when you tuned in in 1977 to see Ethel Merman on The Muppet Show, you're expecting to hear this. You're expecting to hear show tunes, and you're probably expecting to hear there's no business like show business. Like, this probably wasn't a surprising moment, but a welcome one. When you tune in to watch the Twiggy episode, even if you're a fan or even if you, you, you have a positive attitude towards her, I don't know what you're waiting for her to do. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember there being an episode of Muppets Tonight that Cindy Crawford hosted. The thing is, I couldn't tell you a single movie she'd acted in. Her face was all over the early 90s. By then? I don't know if she'd been in any movies by then. And I, I remember they integrating her... Or them integrating her as uh, a love interest for the bear whose name I'm forgetting, and I'm ashamed that I'm forgetting his name. Bubba. Yeah, he used to scare me, but... If your name is not on the list, you don't get in. Hello? If my name is not on your paycheck, you don't get paid. Have a good day, sir. (laughs) I feel like that is going to be an interesting thing to examine in parallel to the Twiggy episode, because nothing against her other talents. They're, They're definitely there, but I think that she was primarily known as a model first. Well, and Cindy Crawford's even less versatile. Yeah. Cindy can't sing. She did have a small acting career. She can't act. She starred in the action thriller Fair Game with Billy Baldwin in, like, 1995. That's awful. A terrible performance. I need to ask you a few questions about the shooting. I'd like to help you, but I can't even tell you if there was a shooting. My report here indicates that there were several witnesses that All I know is a window broke and I got cut by flying glass. I saw a car zoom away, if that's any help. I hadn't seen this episode in a while, but as soon as it started, I was like, I'm going to get some show tunes. (laughs) <laughs> I just know I'm going to get some show tunes. I'm, it's an Ethel Merman episode. I'm getting show tunes. And that's what I got. And that's what I would have expected when I tuned in. And uh, I think she kills it. I think she's an awesome guest star. She was. It was interesting to see these two episodes in parallel. I mean, they're filmed around the same time, so it makes sense. But And I, I think they both did a good job. Yeah. 
Ethel's just got what she's got is a lot more sellable for the show. Twiggy was a little all over the place. That's a fair statement for sure. At the end, Piggy brings her some flowers, but Ethel's worried they're going to explode. A couple things to point out. There was no at the dance this week. That is the only first season episode without an at the dance. There was no Muppet News Flash, so Ethel didn't get to play some kind of crazy character. At the end of the day, what stands out is Ethel freaking Merman bringing the house down. Next week, the Mummin Chants. Whatever that is. We are going to finish up the first season of The Muppet Show. Can you believe it? I can't. It feels like we just started. We got plenty ahead of us. But um, yeah, next week, episode 123 with Kay Ballard and episode 124 with The Mummin Chants. Hey, that's actually a single name for you. The moment chance. I have no idea what the moment chance is. Well, guess what? It's your job to research them next week, so you'll find out. <laughs> Good times. And that'll finish out our season, and then we're going to do a little season one wrap-up show, and then we'll, we'll go on a little, you know, brief hiatus and, and be back for season two. Check us out, social media, at Lunatic Darren. Uh, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. And everybody take care. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Well, every week this show looks better to me. Every week your eyesight gets worse. (laughs) 